You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this installment of the RSA Conference podcast series. I am your host, Casey Zirkus, content strategist for RSA Conference. Today, we are talking about the security opportunities presented by the remote working future that we are facing. It's a reality that many companies never imagined possible, yet somehow Secure Code Warrior and most other businesses have shifted to a completely remote work environment in response to the global pandemic. So as many states across the country move through the phases of reopening, where do we go from here? That's the question of the hour that we'll pose to our guests. But before we get started, Peter and Fatima, please take a moment to introduce yourself. Hey, Casey. Thanks very much. I'm Peter Daniel. I'm the uh, co-founder and the CEO of uh, Secure Code Warrior. My background is uh, early 2000. That's when I kind of started in uh, in security, uh, mainly inspired by movies like uh, War Games, where this uh, 10-year-old boy was able to impress a girlfriend with hacking into computer systems. And I, I basically wanted to do that myself as well. And I uh, I started to learn my craft by doing consulting. I was a teacher for the Sands Institute, also co-founded Brucon uh, in Europe. And then in 2011, I uh, moved to uh, Down Under to Australia. And uh, I basically started working for a defense company. And in 2015, I wanted to help developers stop making mistakes around security uh, flaws that were known since the early 2000s. And that's when I started Secure Code Warrior. Hi, Casey. It's Fatima Beydoun here. Uh, I am currently the VP of Customer Success and Operations at Secure Code Warrior. I've been in the information security industry for about 10 years or working there. Uh, I've worked in consulting in companies like BAE Systems and have also been the Vice Chair of the Australian Information Security Association for about seven years. Uh, so been pretty much working in this industry my whole career. Fantastic. Well, thank you both so much for being here. I know there are some pandemic-specific words that have quickly become trite, but it's really inarguable that the past few months were indeed unprecedented. I know some people just don't even like hearing that word anymore, that in the new normal, right? But what have the global pandemic shown companies about remote working And is a remote workforce going to actually be our future, or will most businesses return to the walls and cubicles that they once had? So, yeah, like for us as a company specifically, I think, uh, of course, COVID has an impact on our growth, on our staff, on our people. But I think we're in this industry around cybersecurity and software development, and I think both of those trends have been really growing a lot in the past five to 10 years. I think uh, the number of developers went from, I think, about 15 million to about 25 million in a couple of years. And the same with cybersecurity, the number of attacks are increasing week on week. So I personally think that this will be a a temporary slowdown for uh, our company, but I don't see companies writing less code in the future. And I also don't see cybersecurity becoming less important in the future. So that's why I think for, for our company, I think we're, we're in, a, in a perfect storm riding on two waves of cybersecurity and software development. So uh, I think this is just a, a temporary glitch. 
I think also looking at um, some of our clients, you can see that they've kind of been impacted in, in different ways. You have some of our clients sort of really leveraging this time where people are at home and, and being able to continue focusing on developers and getting them trained up and, and learning, whereas some have to shift their focus temporarily to actually just being able to set themselves up and set up their, their team for remote working um, and obviously there are a lot of challenges with that for organisations that haven't been set up for this in the past. So I think there has been sort of this this pause or, or not necessarily pause but kind of um, shift in focus and just getting that business continuity going and I think those that kind of are now focusing on that and getting that done, we'll probably be able to have a lot more flexibility going forward when we are all ready to go back to work and we all can do that. Um, so I think it's going to help a lot of organisations to be able to, to set that flexibility up going forward, um, especially those that have never been able to provide that for their organisations in the past. You do need a balance. We at Secure Code Warrior can work quite well remotely. A lot of what we can do for ourselves and for the clients um, is easily done remotely. Although that face-to-face time with clients is still really important. Also with just our team members being able to come and connect and get together and, you know, when you're interviewing new people for, for roles, being able to have that face-to-face is really important. At the moment, we're doing everything remotely. Um, but yeah, I definitely think it, it will help organisations be better be in a better position to be able to provide flexibility for their um, staff going forward if, if they haven't been able to do that in the past. Yeah, and that flexibility is really going to be key if indeed we are looking at a remote workforce future. Um, I know that remote working is nothing new to either of you, but I'd love to hear about the experiences you had as your company moved to a completely remote workforce. Um, I think we, what we've tried to do is kind of take the things that we normally do to keep people connected together in, in the office and kind of have remote versions of them. So we have a yay day, which we, we celebrate wins and, and people's birthdays and all that sort of thing that we normally do every month. Now we've kind of done that remotely. Um, we've got different people within the organisation kind of taking on different things that they're doing, like even remote yoga classes that people have have set up just to kind of keep everybody connected. So I think that that is um, really important because it's important that people stay engaged and still feel part of of the organisation and we're not all working in our own little silos. Um, But I do think it is something where everybody's got their own different situation that they're dealing with at home, whether they've got little children like I've I've had to go from having, you know, a lot of help with my three-year-old son to very little and no daycare, which drove me insane. Other people have different kind of living arrangements, which sometimes are not necessarily the best set up for themselves. So we've had to focus on how can we make help those members of the team kind of set up what they need to do in order to, to make their work place, which is now their home, uh, easier for them to, to get their work done. So so it's very different working one or two days from home and having that flexibility to having to do this full time and, and being able to make sure that everybody stays connected. So there's there's different things that we've we've tried to do. We've also tried to make sure that 
we keep people um, aware of, of how we're progressing as a company, um, making sure that they understand and making it clear that we're not going to be cutting individual roles, you know, if this does impact our company. If we do need to reduce cost, we'll do an overall cost reduction and, and everybody will, will kind of be involved in that and then we won't just sort of single out people that we, you know, want to make redundant. So keeping that that view that we're all um, in this together and, and we'll all we'll get through it, I think, has been really important. So I think for me personally, what, what's been a, a big personal change is that normally I'm probably every two weeks I'm on a flight either to Boston or to San Francisco or to Europe. So I was flying 60, 70% of the time. That's, of course, all gone. Um, the unhealthy lifestyle of, of going in uh, restaurants and sleeping in hotels, like that's all gone. And I can now do most of that work actually uh, remote. And, uh, and it's been an, an eye-opening experience, actually, that you can run a global company out of your home office in Australia. But the downside is, of course, I can't really connect with my employees personally. I can't really talk to them or sit down. And, and have a coffee. So all of that kind of needs to uh, needs to adapt. And we've 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 tried to organise uh, fireside chats where four or five of the employees we jump on a Zoom and, and we have an informal conversation with myself to kind of reflect that hey we're going to go out to a restaurant and, and and basically have dinner together and talk about life and work and customers. We now all have to do that uh, remotely over either Google Meet or Zoom. Yeah, that personalization is so key to our, you know, human relationships, but also our business relationships, right? And we don't want to lose sight of that, even though we have established this really flexible remote work environment that we've invested a lot of time in building over these past few months. So how has the past few months changed the way that businesses value their cybersecurity teams, as well as their understanding of the need for general security awareness, education, and training? From what I've been able to observe, I think there is an increased appreciation for what the security team uh, is trying to do because suddenly you have all all these people that are kind of working from home and not everybody had a company laptop, so they're working on their personal systems. Um, the number of phishing attacks happening increasing and, and succeeding because they're working from unprotected home systems rather than kind of uh, work computers. So I do think that security teams had to work really hard to kind of keep everything up and running and, and safe. And, uh, and I think for our company specifically, what I've noticed that we're probably hiring about five, six people every single week. And all of them got fraudless emails in the first one or two weeks when they started in this company. Basically, they had a fake email that was sent to them uh, out of my name basically a CEO asking you to go go online and, and buy some uh, iTunes vouchers. And, and as you can imagine, people that just started in the company, they don't really know the, the style of the CEO or, or what is being done by email, yes or no. It, it, it definitely impacts them and, 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 and scares them a bit. So, so yes, I, ha- I have seen an, an increase of uh, successful attacks, both on, on, uh, in, in, on Australia's soul, but also in, in our company. So I do think that um, the need for more awareness and more training and making people aware that these things are happening and, and are going to increase to happen while we're kind of working remote uh, is, is something very new. Mm. And our customers have kind of used our platform as well to help to keep their staff engaged and connected. Um, they use our tournaments and, and competitions that they can run with the training in our platform to kind of keep 
people sort of interested and and working towards their security training, but at the same time being able to connect with people within their teams. Um, So a lot of our clients are actually using this uh, as a way to, to continue that training remotely where they don't need people to be in the office um, working or in a room doing their, their classroom training. This can continue on remotely and still be engaged with other people within their teams or within the, the developer community within their organisation. So it's been a helpful tool and we've seen some of our clients, particularly those that are best set up for remote work, kind of hit the ground running with this and, and really increasing their, their usage and increasing the amount of time that they're actually spending on this training and, and on creating some of these awareness activities. And the others that are coming around that corner of having set people up of, are, are now starting to really um, kick that off as well. So it's, it, I think it's been quite helpful for customers to continue to be able to do that um, in this new way of working. Nice. So how can remote teams be both effective and secure? And what are some of the benefits of Access Anywhere collaboration tools and cybersecurity training? Fatima, I know you just started to touch upon that, um, but maybe we can expand a little bit. Yeah, so I think being able to have a way that people can learn where they don't necessarily need to be in a specific place at a specific time you know, everybody has a busy work day and they've got busy things that they need to do at different times, whether you're in the office or not. So being able to do your training or participate in things um, that you can do day-to-day when you have time available. So you may not necessarily sit in uh, all everybody be available at this particular one time to do their training. So being able to have easy access to the training, having things embedded in their day-to-day work is really important. So if they are, for example, coding, regardless of what tool they may be using, having a way to be able to access training as they're working day-to-day is going to be more and more important as well, and they're learning as they're working as well, I think makes it a lot easier for um, for people to kind of incorporate this training into their work and, and not have it sort of a side thing that they need to do at some point point in time. So I think regardless, that will, will be more and more helpful to them. So for Secure Code Warrior, for our team, when we started out in 2015, we were remote from day one. We, we never had like a central headquarters where everybody was, was sitting together. And we fully went in with a strategy around cloud and, and zero trust networking, uh, which basically means we didn't keep servers on premises. Uh, we didn't have any systems running. Everything kind of was uh, either running in AWS or Google or Azure. Um, and we were able to access those things remotely. Now, of course, security kind of comes into play there because you don't want uh, all, all that data to be accessible from anywhere. So that's why we implemented uh, zero trust networking. Um, we've uh, used some of Google's Chrome OS devices um, that basically control what you access from where, from who. It, it's been really effective in this whole COVID period for us that where we've designed our infrastructure to already be remote and working, that's why I think the whole move to working from home and having access to those collaboration tools, but also having access to some of the cybersecurity training that even we as a security company need to provide uh, has been really, really working great for us. So we certainly know that it's not even limited to the remote workforce. 
but, you know, so many aspects of work. Peter, you mentioned not being able to travel, and a lot of times people travel for events that are specific to work. Um, we're super excited about our RSA Conference APJ event. It's our first virtual event coming up in July. And in building that event, we've really focused on looking for the ways that we can continue to build engagement opportunities for attendees. So I'm super curious to hear from both of you your perspectives on the ways in which events such as virtual conferences, summits, tournaments, can help to create a sense of community for clients as well as security enthusiasts. Yep, so it'll be a very interesting space to kind of watch because, of course, moving to virtual conferences, it means we will have loads more of them in our email box to attend or to speak to. Uh, I think conferences at such haven't really innovated much in, in, in the last 20 years. We still have great speakers with a lineup in front of an audience. And I think most conference organizers will have to be uh, creative and find new ways on, on how you can actually connect some of those people uh, with each other, because I know uh, I, I've attended RSA in February in the US and, and APJ last year as well. Like the connections you create there, the interactions you have, the people you meet there, and, and even the even events that are there are uh, are a really important part of those conferences. So moving that over to uh, an, an, a virtual conference or a virtual summit, we'll have to do ways on on, on how to connect people that want to talk about certain subjects or that are interested in, in, in a certain threat to discuss or a certain technology and, and really try to recreate that feeling of meeting people randomly um, uh, around conferences. Uh, we'll have to recreate it in, in, a, in a virtual setting. So I'm really excited to see how, uh, how some of the conference organizers like ours are, are going to pull that off. Cool. And I think also making sure that with the sort of sessions that are run, that they're engaging in a way that people can participate quite actively in them and participate in learning as well as helping other people. So any type of hackathons or tournaments that can be set up and where people can learn and also participate in the competition at the same time or, or even if there is no competition, just being able to be more actively involved and actively participating in the sessions I think is going to be key as opposed to just having people present information uh, I think will be key as well. I want to go back to developers for a moment and, you know, thinking pre-pandemic DevSecOps, so much of the conversation was about the need to integrate security into um, development and operations and the need to intertwine these departments, right, like breaking down those silos. And so now in these remote environments, how is it possible to inspire developers to learn more about cybersecurity and software security when they are effectively working almost siloed again? So a lot of our customers have got thousands of developers across the world. And so being able to kind of get them engaged and, and wanting them to learn about cybersecurity and, and how to code securely can be challenging. So a lot of it really is around the messaging and, and getting developers to understand why is it important for me to learn this and why is it important for us to, to kind of, as an organisation, um, get on top of this and what a lot of the times they'll ask, well, what am I going to get out of it as well? 
So I think one of the the ways that we sort of approach when we're, we're rolling out programs with developers and, and getting them on board is really not trying to boil the ocean and kind of say every developer needs to learn about every single security vulnerability and, and, and this is how we're going to have security experts in in terms of developers, we're not trying to build security experts. What we try and do with our customers to to really say to take a phased approach and and get them to see and understand why it is we're doing things in a certain way. So a lot of our programs focus on, well, instead of, you know, a lot of the times people think, oh, well, what's top 10? Let's just go and teach everybody about that. But we say kind of look at your own organisation, bring out some data and, and be able to demonstrate what are those vulnerabilities that are in, impacting us um, the most, you know, pick two or three of the, the top vulnerabilities in your organisation, make that visible and kind of get everybody on board that we're going to work towards eliminating needs from our organisation. So we have this phased approach of looking at, you know, these are the top three that we'll, we'll focus on. We'll start with an awareness phase where we may run some competition. We'll focus on top three. Then we'll, we'll look at sort of building a baseline for the organisation as a whole in terms of that could be their top five or six vulnerabilities, which everybody needs to be able to, to demonstrate that they are aware and understand how to avoid these vulnerabilities. And then the way that our organisations are kind of uh, using these baseline certifications internally is is allowing a developer to do more if they're sort of certified internally within their own organisation. So kind of getting them in that sort of fast lane, so to speak, in that you don't need to go through as many security hoops when your your code, sorry, won't need to go through as many security hoops to get released if you are certified within a certain level. So kind of using it as a way that it kind of gives them a, a fast path sort of um, going through their development cycle and, and letting them push their code out a lot a lot quicker because we know that they've been, you know, certified or have a, a good understanding of, of the top weaknesses within the organisation. Um, we also have a, a belting, you know, people use belts, people use other, you know, Star Wars type things or whatever they want to use, but basically having different levels which um, developers can aspire to. So there's your mandatory baseline, but then there may be higher levels of certifications which they don't need to achieve, but th that they can achieve if they wish to and then becoming also those champions and those that are supporting people within their organisation. So I think it's really important about putting it into context. Why are we learning this? What am I actually going to get out of this if I know this? And I really do feel that ultimately it will become something that, that industries start to push where they really expect a certain level of security knowledge before engaging in, a, in a, uh, hiring a developer. I know a lot of our customers do use our platform to also um, assess developers before they're hiring them. It's not to say they won't hire a developer if they don't have the right security skill, but it is just another um, element that they will, will look at when looking at a candidate as a whole and then in, in seeing which are the areas they need to focus on when they're actually embedded into the company. So um, it really the messaging is, is really important. And, and I think adding to that, the two key things that I found which works really well to inspire developers is to give them training which is relevant and to give it at the, at the right time. And, and I'll dive a little bit deeper in those two things, but uh, at the right time, developers, they face an enormous pressure of delivering code as fast as possible to kind of bring it out to market. So they often don't have that much time. So it's important that you can give them 
microlearnings or while they're coding or while they, while they are addressing tickets in Jira or GitHub issues or any of those developer tools. And when they need to fix the security bug, that's when they need to have that knowledge on how to fix it and how to basically write secure code. So it needs to be at the right time. Um, the, the second one was around relevance. And I think this is where a lot of organizations are kind of making mistakes by doing very generic or video-based training, is that training is relevant for a developer. The language in which that training is being provided is a, it's a coding language that the developer is actually um, uh, using day-to-day. And, and not only the, the coding language, but also the frameworks that they're using. Because, for example, Java has a whole bunch of frameworks from Struts, from Spring to Spring Boot, and there's many variations of how developers can basically code in, in Java Spring. Now, the security flaws itself they haven't really changed that much over the past 15 years. We're still talking about insecurely storing passwords or injection attacks or cross-site scripting attacks. But what has changed is the languages that developers are basically using. Many of them have moved from Java to JavaScript or now even to, to Rust or uh, Vue.js. So, and, and it's important that when you provide a program, when you provide training, you can actually give the developer content or training that is relevant to its specific framework. So you, you shouldn't be training uh, COBOL developers on how to write secure Java code. It, need, it needs to be really relevant. And I think one of the things that I've seen becoming very popular is a, anything around uh, cloud. Think about technologies like Terraform or Ansible. Those kind of a, uh, languages have flaws in them as well. So it's important that you can basically provide developers with training that is, is very relevant to their day-to-day job. Mm. And so much of that is, you know, made me think of leading into the next question in that, you know, it's relevant understanding their day-to-day job. And for many people, their day-to-day job differs based on what they're doing, right? So um, we know that cybersecurity organizations value difference and diverse teams. But I'd love to hear from each of you about why a range of voices is vital in a growing technology company. Yeah, I think there's a lot of research out there that shows diversity in teams and management builds stronger teams, and I think probably Secure Code Warrior is a, is a great example of that. Um, our founding team has diversity built in. We started with four people, all different ethnicities, different religions, different strengths and weaknesses, um, and today we've got about 154 staff, and, and we're really proud that about 50% of them are females. We've got every religion, race, every diet possible. Um, and we, we've seen that quite a lot when, when birthdays come up, trying to get a birthday cake being difficult. Um, but we don't intentionally go out there and say we're going to go and hire females. That's not the way that we work. It's about really understanding through the interview process things that we, we know that things to look out for when interviewing people in terms of the way that females and males may present themselves in interviews and really trying to find those, those candidates and maybe if, if, if somebody isn't being as open about how great they are that we, we can ask the right questions and understand the different ways that people from different genders or different races sort of present themselves um, and how we can have better conversations with them to better understand their strengths 
um, when hiring people. So I think that's been really great for us because different voices, different opinions all matter and, and it really helps us to, to make better decisions across the organisation, being able to get so many different perspectives. And um, I think we do that really, really well at Secure Code Warrior and it's important for us as a company. Yeah, so as Fadama said, I think one of the things that I am kind of known of in the company is that I want to interview every single person that is joining our company. And, and as I said before, we've, we've kind of grown from four to 150 people hiring uh, three, four people every week. It takes a lot of time out of my diary to kind of interview every single one of them. And not all of them kind of make it to the end. But what I'm actually looking for in that final interview, because I'm not going to assess their skills or I'm not going to kind of look at their resume or experience because I'm, I kind of assume that my team has done all the vetting and validation that, that, that this person is actually quite for the role. But what I'm really looking for in that final interview is that can I learn something out of this interview that I didn't know um, I'm absolutely not looking for people that have the same opinion as me and that have the same view on things of me because then you're creating a company of people that are all kind of thinking the same as me. And that's probably a very bad thing. So in, in that final interview, I'm always looking for, can this person teach me something that I, that, I, that I didn't know? And whether that is around security or whether that is around software development or whether that is even around traveling or personal things. Um, and that's kind of what I'm looking for in, in those final uh, interviews. And even in our management team, like Fatima is, is, is one, of the, uh, one of the females in my management team. And I think um, I've realized over the years that I need to surround myself with people that have a different view on uh, perspectives than I do because they need to challenge me in the decisions that I'm making, whether that is the decision where the product is going or whether that is decisions that are relevant to our people or or to our customers. And I want to surround myself with people that actually think differently because although we often have arguments and discussions about things, it does allow me and, and other people in the management team to kind of have a broader perspective on, uh, on, on certain mm-hmm. subjects. So absolutely, like diversity has been a really key driver in our company. And I think it's one of the reasons why we've grown so fast. And I'm, and I'm actually really proud on, on some of the statistics we have in our company around the diverse uh, range of employees we've been able to hire. Yeah, it's so important to personal and professional growth, right, to be challenged, like you said, to have to surround yourself with people that don't think the way that you do. Peter, Fatima, this has really been quite an enjoyable conversation. I appreciate so much both of you joining us. Before we go, do you have any parting words for our listeners? So what, what I want to try and do is, like, I've, I started security when the first instance of SQL injection and cross-site scripting were kind of found around the year 2000. And my mission is to really make sure that, that those things don't really happen anymore. And after 20 years, they're still kind of one of the top 10 vulnerabilities that are happening in, in software. So I, I'd really like people to kind of join me on the mission to make sure that we don't write 20-year-old software security flaws anymore because that's going to make companies and the world a, uh, a far better place. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what, 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 what I want to achieve, and I'm hoping that some of the listeners will, will join on, uh, on that journey. I think for me, um, just sort of growing through this industry, I think one of the key things I always want people to understand is that their opinion does matter. And a lot of the times, 
if you're concerned about saying something, it's probably what other people are thinking and you're not saying. So it's really important for everybody to have a voice and to sort of speak their opinion and not to be afraid of that because I think when we all do that, lots of great things result. Thank you both. That was really great advice. I appreciate that. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Stay tuned for more in our RSA conference podcast series. We'll talk soon.